Perhaps you are familiar with Dorothy Day, who was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1897 and died in 1980. She was a journalist who became very interested in social issues and helping workers, factory workers and such, and the poor there in New York City. And she took her Christian faith right into the most, some of the most dreadful slums of New York City. And there she ended up starting or establishing what was called the first Catholic worker house, a place of radical Christian discipleship. The house became a place of hospitality for the down and out for men she would later describe as, quote, gray men, the color of lifeless trees and bushes and winter soil, who had in them yet none of the green of hope, the rising sap of faith. Soon after she established the Catholic Worker House, it began, it began to accept women and children as well. And the story is told one day that a wealthy socialite woman pulled up in a big car and wanted to uh, receive a tour of the Catholic Worker House. And she received the obligatory tour of the mission from Dorothy Day herself. And as the woman was leaving, she kind of abruptly turned and stopped and faced Dorothy Day and gave her the diamond ring that she was wearing on her finger. She handed it to Day, and then she got in her car and left. The staff was ecstatic, as you can imagine, when they heard about this. They thought this could be sold for a princely, uh, a princely sum. Maybe it would be enough money to take some of the pressure off the budget, and they could do some new things there for at least for a while. A day or two later, though, one of the staff members happened to see a homeless woman there at the house wearing the diamond ring that that socialite lady had given. Staff couldn't understand what had happened, and they confronted Dorothy Day about it. Why in heaven's name would you just give away a valuable piece of jewelry like that? <laughs> and Dorothy Day responded like this. That woman was admiring the ring. She thought it was beautiful, so I gave it to her. Do you think God made diamonds just for rich people to wear? Even Dorothy Day's own staff thought, what a waste. One Christmas, the grandparents spent a good deal of money, and they bought their granddaughter Barbie's dream house. You can imagine the excitement of opening up this big box, and then the child put the dream house away and played with the box for the rest of the time. Rather than rejoicing in their granddaughter's excitement on Christmas, they were bothered that the toy was not played with like they thought it should be. A married couple thought about taking some of their money and going on a 
little romantic getaway. They had been so busy, so stressful, it would probably do some, some good. But then they decided to cancel the trip because there were just too many other things they needed the money for. Why waste it on that trip? A bright and talented uh, college student graduates, and instead of going on to law school like she had anticipated, she decides to go to work for an inner-city mission, and most of her friends and family included thought, well, what a waste of talent. Why would she do that? She had such a bright future, and she's doing that. A father has done quite well for himself and has a large farming operation with significant acreage and hundreds of employees. When his two sons got old enough, they went to work for the family business and helped their father continue in his success. And one day the young son came up and asked his father for his share of the inheritance in advance, which was a legal request at the time. It was something legitimate that he could do. And so the father graciously responded and liquidated a third of his assets and gave the younger son the money. And the son subsequently went to a foreign country a long way off and squandered the money. What a waste, everybody thought, especially the older brother. But the father loved his son so much that every day he went out to the road and watched for his son who might possibly come back. And while he was doing that one day, off in the distance, he saw a shadow. And could it be his son? And the, the father, rather than standing there, took off and ran. And sure enough, there was no doubt it was his son. He had come back home and he hugged him and squeezed him. I imagine he picked him up and twirled him around several times, the boy's feet dangling there in the air. And uh, as the son began to tell his dad how sorry he was, the apology that he had uh, thought up there in the pigsty as he was watching them eat better than he did, the father interrupted him in mid-sentence and said, no more, I don't want to hear any more of it. And he shouted to the servants to get ready because there would be a celebration. Bring the best robe, slay the fatted calf, get the signet ring for his finger, and put some shoes on his feet. We're going to have a celebration. The son of mine who was dead is now alive. He who was lost is now found. The prodigal had come home. And the word prodigal, as you probably uh, know, uh, means wasteful extravagance. And often this story is uh, centered on the son who wasted the inheritance. But rather, we point out that it was the father who was the prodigal here because the father uh, gave extravagant love to his son when he came back home. And some would say that's wasteful extravagance. He gave it all while others were thinking, why bother? Why did you waste your time? Why the party? In the fourth gospel, John tells the story of how a man named Lazarus was very sick. It's chapter 11. His sisters, Mary and Martha, who lived with Lazarus in Bethany, were distraught because their dear friend Jesus did not make it back in time to heal their brother 
And when Jesus finally arrived on the fourth day, the day after all hope had gone, Lazarus was, was dead and nobody believed there could anything could be done. Lazarus' tomb was sealed with a large stone. And when Jesus saw it, he broke down and wept, obviously for his dear friend Lazarus who had died, but also, I imagine, Jesus thinking about another tomb which would be sealed with a large stone. I imagine he tasted the salt in his tears as they poured down his cheeks. And then Jesus said there at the tomb, take away the stone. And he prayed to his father in heaven. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of those people standing here, that they may believe you sent me. And then he said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Lazarus, who had died, was now alive. And shortly after Jesus performed this miracle, Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, threw a party to celebrate their brother who was dead and who was now alive. And they invited Jesus as the guest of honor and held this party to celebrate their brother who had risen, been raised from the dead, and Jesus who had been responsible for the miracle. This was the last recorded dinner, as, as I see in, in the text, that Jesus had with his friends before his passion just a week later. Or as the sermon title states, it was the Last Supper before the Lord's Supper. As you know, the Lord's Supper came on that Thursday night, we understand as Monday Thursday, which we'll observe here in our church. According to the accounts in Matthew and Mark's gospel, the setting of this celebration was in the home of a man named Simon the leper. He had been known by his disease, and we understand that Jesus likely healed him, and therefore he was happy to host the party. Wouldn't you want Jesus to come to your home too after such thing happened? We can imagine the setting Jesus reclining on the cushions around the table. The disciples are there as our other guests. Martha busy making all the preparations. Imagine the empty plates making noise as they are carried from the table and the clink of the dishes and splattering of the water as they are cleaned up in the nearby rooms. And there Jesus with the other guests and they're having conversation talking about the upcoming Passover feast. Maybe some are asking Lazarus about what he must have experienced when he died. Lazarus, did you see the light? Was there a tunnel? Did you see from above? What was it like? Did you see Moses and Elijah? We understand that that's what we'll see. And then there's a loud crack, the neck of an alabaster jar of perfume. Mary takes a whole pound of this expensive perfume and lays down at the feet of Jesus and pours the jar's contents covering his feet. Then she lets down her hair and wipes his feet with her hair. 
This was indeed an act of humility. It was servant's work. And she humbled herself to do that. An act of extravagant generosity, though. Perhaps foreshadowing the, the, the washing of Jesus, or Jesus washing the feet of the disciples after the Passover meal. Servant's work. An act of humility. Mary wiped the worst part of Jesus, his dirty, grimy feet, with the best part of her, her beautiful let-down hair, an act of intimacy. Mary had a complete disregard for anything else that was going on in the room. She would not be deterred. She would not be distracted. Leonard Sweet, a church historian and futurist, says this, it wasn't uncommon those days to anoint the head of a guest as a sign of respect, but in those cases only a few drops of oil were used. The pouring of lavish amounts of oil, again on the head, was the kind of anointing that was considered sacred, and it was usually reserved for designating someone as a king or a priest. The anointing marked that person for divine service. Anointed, right, sweet, in the English is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah or the Greek word Christos, where we understand Messiah. So while we have no way of knowing exactly what Mary was thinking, her action expresses, writes Lynn Sweet, more than a simple respect for Jesus. It seems to express her conviction that he is the Messiah. And perhaps Mary poured the perfume on his feet because she didn't see herself worthy to pour, it, to pour it on his head. Judas Iscariot, as you know, was also at the table. He saw everything that happened. And when he saw what Mary did and smelled the aroma of the perfume as it filled the house, he became incensed. What a waste. Why wasn't the perfume sold and given to the poor? This would be a year's wages. Some estimate today around $30,000. In John's gospel, Judas is singled out. And we think he's the only one who thought like this, said that. But in Matthew's account of this story, in 20, chapter 26, verses 8 and 9, the disciples also joined in the questioning. Listen. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. So not only Judas, but some of the other disciples thought the same thing. But in John's gospel, the narrator reminds us that Judas could care less about the poor. He frequently stole money from his fellow disciples, embezzling out of their money bags. Within the week, he would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Compare that to what Mary gave. And then Jesus rebukes Judas. Leave her alone. And he says nothing. He says nothing about Judas being a thief. He rises to Mary's defense, saying that her act is for the day of my burial. And he's pointing toward the work of the cross that would come. Anointing the dead was a common burial practice in that time, but Jesus, knowing it was coming, accepted this anointing, not as a king, 
But for his coming burial, he had set his eyes on Calvary. Mary's gift was an extravagant one out of love, not wasted perfume. And perhaps, as you're probably thinking, we can read this story alongside the story of the parable of the loving father in Luke's gospel, where Luke showcased the extravagant spending of the younger son and the extravagant love of the father, a prodigal father who loved his son and was lavishly, extravagantly wasteful over his return. Mary continues this theme of extravagance in the form of costly gestures involving expensive perfume. During the course of this Lenten season here at Huguenot Road Baptist Church, we acknowledge that Lent is normally a time of deprivation where we withdraw from things or we give up certain things or we, we don't do something, and instead of that, we fast and we pray. We do that for 40 days and 40 nights, excluding Sundays, which are resurrection days, Easter days. However, we've asked the question during this season of Lent, instead of giving up something or depriving ourselves of something, what can we give? How can we give of ourselves? How can we make sacrifices to the work of the Lord? How can we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God? I believe this text gives a wonderful example of that and how Mary had given a gift that cost her years and years and years to come. Neither the loving fathers nor Mary's generosity is appropriate extravagance when you think about what Jesus has done for us. The father said to his older son, but you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And Jesus said to Judas and to the others, leave her alone. In other words, no, uh, this is no time for frugality. This extravagance on earth that she has exhibited is participating with the work of heaven. There is much more to come. In her work, The Seeds of Heaven, Episcopal priest and author Barbara Brown Taylor writes this. To be where God is, is to follow Jesus means going beyond the limits of our own comfort and safety. It means receiving our lives as gifts instead of guarding them as our own possessions. It means sharing the life we've been given instead of bottling it up for our own consumption. It means giving up the notion that we can build dams to contain the bright streams of our lives and letting them go instead. Letting them swell their banks and spill their wealth until they carry us down where they run, full and growing fuller into the wide and glittering sea. 
the woman with the ointment, Mary, reminds us that some of those things we're quick to call wasted surely are not. Instead, they are wonderful gifts of extravagance poured on us by love itself. This love is best expressed in Jesus' death on the cross. And the Apostle Paul perhaps expresses it in such a clear and plain way when he said, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the good news, y'all. Christ died for us. It's simple. All we have to do is receive his grace. going to share bread and